0: a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor Justin
1: Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, June 22nd, 2023 edition, and I am Justin Klein. And as usual, when I do the show on Thursday, Luke Rero's with me. Welcome back, Luke. Thanks for having me. It's a good Thursday. One more day to the weekend. There you go. And we're here to help give you some data. I know Luke, uh, Luke's a, the data expert uh, here. And uh, I'm the perspective expert, I guess you could say, since uh, 20 plus years of investment experience. And our job is to uh, instill uh, a little bit of both and help you become a better investor, take that next step towards financial freedom. And in light of that, on uh, the top of this podcast, I want to make you aware of our webinar coming up just less than a week away now, uh, June 28th. That's next Wednesday rates in real estate. It's a a free webinar and you're going to gain some valuable insights in commercial real estate, excuse me, uh, residential real estate for 2023 and beyond. Now, we're also going to look at REITs. Excuse me. And we're also going to have a special guest, Kent LeFavor. He is an expert in deferred sales trusts. And that's going to be an interesting way, if you have a lot of real estate assets, to think about mm, maybe opportunities uh, in other directions uh, in an an environment where obviously real estate uh, continues to slow. So we're going to do this at 1 p.m. Pacific time. It's going to be 1 to 2 2 p.m. Pacific time next Wednesday. And you can register right now on investtalk.com. Now, with that said, today's podcast, I'm going to blend my comments uh, with you, the listeners, questions. And you set the table. You're vital to this program because you shape the show. Uh, We can talk about whatever is on our mind. But your Non-pre-screened live calls are uh, important to really push the, the agenda. And we're committed to giving you the answers uh, that fit our worldview uh, in regards to the data that we're looking at and the perspective that, that we have. So we have no agenda. We're just going to give you the best path forward for your investment journey and we encourage you to do a few things, as always, which is ignore emotions, focus on the task at hand, the data that's in front of you. Don't chase headlines uh, and try to avoid uh, that, that fear and greed that can creep in uh, really to any time. Now, I'm ready, we're ready, excuse me, to answer your questions at 888-99-CHART so you can call right now. Now, our focus point today looks at the story behind this question. How do alternative investments fit into a diversified portfolio? And alternative strategies, as they are uh, aptly named, they give you a fundamentally different type of exposure to assets uh, and strategies. And this can be very different. So alternatives have many buckets. Uh, kind of sub categories of alternatives, which we're going to dig into and kind of give you the long and short of how to think about how to gain exposure if you should gain exposure to the alternative asset sector. Also, we're going to touch on inflation, not just here in the U.S., but worldwide and what policymakers are doing about it. Also, drone pal is trying to engineer a soft landing while still fighting inflation. So what type of Challenges is that uh, create for him, and then lastly, we're going to look at uh, what was the what was the last one we we're going to do? I forget what was it, Luke? There's one more. Oh, that's what it was. Uh, South Korea has overtaken, or uh, the U.S. has overtaken China in imports from South Korea. What does that tell you about deglobalization, regional regionalizing supply chains? And, and we're going to look at that story as well. We also have some voice bank questions. One is on portfolio management and MDU resources. So this is what we have planned for today's episode of Invest Talk. Now let's take a look at the market today. It was the headline numbers were positive. If you look at the S and P, that was up about 16 points. But Luke, the the broad equity indices, the uh, if you look at the NYC, that was uh, down slightly. So we continue this kind of modest pullback uh, after the, these recent highs. Uh, what do you think is really driving this this pullback?
2: Yeah, you know, I think we had a, a quite the run uh, run up in tech, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been a lot of positioning that hedge funds have been kind of drawing down on some of their long positions as well. Um, and I think overall people are just evaluating that the you know the price appreciation the movement of the market over the past couple of days over the past you know couple of weeks isn't really in tune with a lot of what we're seeing with the higher for longer attitude of the Fed um, and potentially shrinking demand both in the
1: country and outside of it yeah and and that is the second last part I think is most important uh, over was it this morning or, or yesterday uh, Jerome Powell uh, testified in front of Congress and and really really was even more more hawkish in his tone compared to the the last Fed meeting. Uh, Now, maybe that, like you said, is uh, in the face of that that strong equity market, uh, but... You know That's what I think really will, was, was driving the market a little bit lower. You saw the dollar higher today. Uh, and what are the odds for a Fed rate hike in the at the end of uh, July? It's upwards of 70%. Yeah, so that's starting to creep in as well. So I think that's really uh, what's weighing on here. But uh, if you look at it overall, I don't really see anything major from a technical perspective. Like you said, it was a, a bit overbought. Uh, and the S and P actually closed up today, so uh, I think we're, we're we're hitting up into resistance, and it's expected to at least chop sideways. That's what happened uh, back in April and May. We hit uh, hit resistance, kind of the levels that we saw in uh, early February that we came off of, and it consolidated before we moved higher. I certainly could see that again because liquidity remains relatively robust, even though uh, rates uh, look like they're they're continuing to go higher. So. Um, Interesting little pullback uh, and a modest down day overall, even though the S&P was a bit higher. Now, let's head over to our first listener question now.
3: Hi, Justin and Steve. This is Mike from Detroit. Asking about ticker symbol here, PBI, the PIMCO Dynamic Income Fund. Looks like it's a a closed-end fund, higher expense ratio. Been on a downtrend here lately for the past few months likely secondary to the rise in uh, interest rate that the Fed has been implementing. Just wondering what you think would be a good entry point for this closed-ended fund. I'm attracted to the to the dividend. I think it's paying out a 14% dividend right now. Uh, I know there's other things that should be considered, but um just wondering what you think a good entry point would be. Thank you.
1: Well, let's look at uh, PDI, which is the PIMCO Dynamic Income Fund, and... You're right the expense ratio is pretty high two point six four percent their interest expense alone is point six three percent because this is this has leverage it employs leverage to get that nice juicy dividend, which is pretty high fourteen point three percent and as always Luke, when something is yielding that high, uh, there's some risk involved uh, here, and it looks like that is uh, in regards to credit risk, right
2: yeah, that's what it looks like
1: yes so about uh, it's still it's still fairly hot, fairly high quality assets. Let me see what it is. Thirty percent government, uh, only twenty percent corporate, twenty three percent securitized. Um, so it's it's fairly spread out. That's one thing I like about it that it's not just focused on one part of uh, the credit markets, but that leverage. You know, that's why it's declined so dramatically uh, is because the the underlying bonds that it, that it has uh, have declined. Let's see what's its duration risk here. Interestingly enough it has
2: 40% exposure to mortgage backed securities.
1: 40%. Yeah. yeah. So well the uh, is that commercial mortgage backed securities or is that residential? I think I think it's yeah, the big question. Yeah, that's
2: that's the big question. I can't really get down into the into In, the weeds.
1: Into the, into the weeds there, yeah. Um you know, what I would say is this is this is just a, a broad play on on bonds. You know, do you think that the the default cycle is going to be pushed off for a while? Do you think that interest rates are headed lower versus higher? Obviously the last few months, this has rallied a little bit uh, as interest rates have come down, but it really hasn't rallied that much. So that's what worries me uh, the most. Is it trading at a discount or a premium? I think is, that would be my question. Let's see, pulling that up here. It looks like currently, it's at about 7%. Yeah, I would not be, be buying this right now. I'm not a huge fan of that leverage uh, just to get that 14%. Big downside, as we've seen over the last couple of years, and 14% is not enough to compensate for me. Now, we're heading into a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Talk Voice Bank, or if you're listening via the live stream on AM 1220 in the San Jose Bay Area, give us a call now at 888-99-CHART.
3: KPP Financial invites you to join us for a new Invest Talk Wealth Webinar, Rates and Real Estate. You'll gain valuable investing insights for the commercial and residential real estate markets of 2023. We will also explore the world of REITs and delve into a comprehensive analysis of the Deferred Sales Trust, a real estate tax deferral strategy. The Invest Talk Wealth Webinar will take place on Wednesday, June 28th from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Time, and it will be led by Invest Talk host Justin Klein, along with KPP Financial Portfolio Manager Luke Guerrero. This complimentary webinar is your opportunity to learn from top finance experts in the industry. So go to InvestTalk.com, register for this free Wealth Webinar. Rates and real estate. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk eight 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 ninety nine chart.
4: Hey Steve or Justin, you guys always say that you should never have one stock be more than five percent of your portfolio. When you say 5% of your portfolio, do you mean of just your stock portfolio or does that count like your cash and, and uh, retirement account as well? Is it just your stock portfolio that everything to get it that it shouldn't be more than 5% of? Thank you. I'll listen on the podcast.
1: I definitely think it's more of your broad uh, investment assets. So if you have an IRA and a 401k, then you can combine those together. For example, I think you put cash separately and that's kind of its own own bucket uh, for emergencies. Uh, what do you think, Luke? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't know if I would separate cash. I, I consider that a part of my asset base
2: as well. But, you know, when you think about the risks that you're taking on with any individual investment, you have to have it in the lens of, well, your overall allocation, right? So if a client comes to us and wants to, to us to to manage their assets, we have to see everything they have um, mm-hmm. so that you can appropriately diversify, appropriately control for those risks. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I agree. It's more of a, more of a broad view.
1: Yeah, because yeah, it's... You know, if you have a small portfolio, that's 10% of your total assets. You know, if it's 20% in one name, you know, the overall, you're, you're broadly diversified because you, uh, you have other assets elsewhere. So, yeah, it's definitely out of your overall uh, asset base. All right. Now, let's fit in one more question now.
4: Hi, Stephen, Justin. This is Cooper from Oklahoma. Just had a stock idea. Just want to see you guys check it out. It's Paycom, Um, could
3: you look it over for me
4: and let me know your comments and thoughts, thanks.
1: All right, this is Paycom Software, and it is, let's see, how big is this name? About 18 billion dollars. So, would you consider that large cap, mid cap? Uh, mid-cap. mid-cap. yeah. Yeah, mid-cap's kind of creeped up. Mid-cap, it kind of creeped up to like the 6, 15, 16 range. Yeah, so you're borderline here. It uh, used to be, I remember when I first started, it was like 10 billion, anything over 10. But obviously with inflation and, and uh, inflation of asset prices, you know, 15, 20, 20 billion, that's where you start getting into uh, the large-cap space. So, uh, But it's it's fast-growing, obviously. It has uh, revenue growth over the past two years, year over year, right around that 30%. Almost consistently, almost like clockwork on on the sales side, and same with earnings uh, around that level as well. This year, earnings supposed to go up twenty five percent, and then twenty one percent next year to nine dollars and twenty seven cents. So, forward looking, talking about a little over thirty multiple, uh, you know, for something growing that consistent consistently, Luke, that's not bad, Uh, and I think that it's small enough where you know, you might have uh, more runway for that growth. My always worry is when does that growth peter out? When is it slow? And it hasn't so far.
2: Yeah, I mean, it looks to me like their profitability has kind
1: of dropped a little bit from
2: mm-hmm. the highs before the pandemic. But, you know, on the other side of that, you mentioned it before, their projected earnings is looking good. They've constantly gotten some some earnings upgrades in the past couple weeks. They have very little debt. I mean, these are mm-hmm. all good things.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, from a fundamental perspective, it is a, a company that's uh, certainly executing well, both on the profitability side and the growth side, which which I like. And so I'm willing to pay a uh, higher than market multiple for something like that. And so around 30 multiple, uh, I think that's okay. And then technically, you know, it's not, not fantastic, but uh, it's, it's pretty good. So uh, I'm going to give Paycom, if you're looking for the growth side of the market, this is definitely one of those better names that uh, is at least living up to uh, the hype. All right. Now we're heading into a break, so give Invest Talk a call right now at 888 99 Chart.
3: One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts, and every answer I provide will be unbiased you the caller get to chart the course for each invest talk podcast call with your questions anytime day or night 888 99 chart
1: now let's touch on our main focus point today and that is how do alternative investments fit into a diversified portfolio and as you'd imagine uh, alternative strategies offer something different than your traditional asset classes your bonds your stocks your commodities and there are a lot of different strategies underneath the alternative asset umbrella. And it's often tough to really decide how to appropriately benchmark them. Cause just remember, these are different. You're, you're not going to uh, ask a, a horse to act like a dog. They're fundamentally different. And so uh, you, you, they're, they're under many different asset class, or, or categories, but uh, broadly they are equity market neutral, event driven option trading, relative value arbitrage, and then multi-strategy, which means kind of a mix of all of them. Now, this is an area where comparing them to, some some of them you can compare fairly well to equities or other traditional asset classes, and others are completely, completely different. And those ones that are most different are typically equity market neutral, that's typically your long and short funds. Event driven, that would be like M&A arbitrage um, and then relative value arbitrage. And so these are the ones that are typically not that sensitive to moves in what's happening in the equity markets. Uh, And they tend to uh, that's because they're they're not just owning broadly those asset classes and and kind of trading around the margins. so. There are common ones like covered call strategies that uh, are classified as alternative because, but because they have so much equity in them, you know, it, it's 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 still pretty correlated. So, how do you, Luke, think of alternative strategies, and how do you think you know investors should think about them?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think over short periods of time, I know there's been some 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 changes in correlations relative to the broad market in the past couple of years. But if you look at you know the long the long term correlations, it, it's pretty consistent, right? You can you can stably see that the that those the, there there are ways to diversify your portfolio through these types of vehicles that can lead to better investment outcomes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's and that's really what it is it's diversification, and it, most of the time they underperform. But it's the times like last year where they most of them that were are are not really correlated to the market. The ones that I kind of listed off, uh, they either were barely down. Some of them were up pretty dramatically, and that's when they earn their keep, right? So last year, for example, for example, alternative categories delivered returns ranging from between positive sixteen point nine percent and negative nine point two. And the S and P was down what roughly twenty percent. Nasdaq was down about thirty three percent, and so the ones that uh, the, the ones that are not uh, very correlated with the overall market, at worst they did they were up five point nine percent last year, uh, and like I said, the, at best they're up sixteen point nine. So this is something where it's I want to say it's a, a rainy day allocation, but it's a, it's a diversification. Uh, mechanism. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's how I think about it. Most
2: most years, bonds are going to underperform stocks. That's yeah. just going to happen, right? But does
1: that mean you should own them?
2: No, it doesn't mean you should own okay. them because the po- the point of diversification is not only diversifying your risk, but smoothing the investment experience. Right? It's not just. It's about limiting the volatility in a way that helps preserve capital. Yes, but also helps you sleep at night.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and it's one of those things where you. Have to pick the right strategy for you and your ability to understand that you know when you have good years like 2021 right equities were up high 20 percent general in general range a lot of those were not up very much but then obviously the next year they earn their keep so you know alternative strategies aren't uh, this broad bucket and they're, they're sold a lot you know you get a lot of calls the, the costs the fees on them are pretty high because they're typically complex uh, strategies they're not this they're not index funds where you're only getting charged four or five basis points uh, because those that are running that fund aren't doing a lot of work they're doing a lot of work to do mA arbitrage that can be uh, that can be uh, time consuming and it takes real thought and understanding, where and when to take risks. I will also say, though, it does
2: lean back on the Cardinal rule, which is you should understand what's in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. And some of these things are a lot more complex. And maybe some people don't want to take the time to understand them and you shouldn't allocate towards them. But yeah. but certainly, I think there's reason enough to to learn about them and see if they, if they fit your portfolio.
1: Yeah. I, if I'm going to pick one, if I'm going to pick one of these five that are not, I guess, one of the three that are not very allocated, or not very uh, correlated with the overall market, it would probably be the like m arbitrage. I think that has the the best kind of risk adjusted return. And if you blend something that uh, can, can diversify the portfolio more with uh, your traditional 60-40 portfolio, the N-sharp ratio, which is a measure of basically risk versus reward for a portfolio, actually goes up. So I think there is a place for it, but you have to be mentally prepared for Underperforming in good years, and knowing that, that you're going to make that back uh, in years where you know the traditional uh, asset classes don't do very well, like last year.
2: Yep. Understand what you
1: own. Exactly. All right. Well, on the next invest stock, the story behind this story: a billionaire investor says the U.S. entered debt crisis with shortage of Treasury buyers, and the estimation is based on the fact that institutional investors who bought Treasuries a few years ago were ultimately hurt by the Fed's rapid interest rate hikes. Steve, will get to that story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. Stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com, that's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com, HackerOne.com.
3: KPP Financial invites you to join us for a new InvestTalk Wealth Webinar. Rates and Real Estate, June 28th, from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Time. You'll gain valuable investing insights for the commercial and residential real estate markets of 2023. So go to investtalk.com, register for this free wealth webinar. Let's
1: go talk to Taylor in Minneapolis, and he has a portfolio management question.
4: Hey Justin, yeah, I've got a question about just evaluating your own personal portfolio. Um, I know that the Dow is only made up of thirty stocks, and the S and P five hundred is made up of the top five hundred. When comparing my portfolio to the S and P five hundred over the last six months, I've only made a measly two percent on my portfolio, and Uh, The S&P 500 is up 14%, so I'm just curious to know if there's a better way to evaluate my personal portfolio or how you go about doing that?
2: Yeah, hey, this is Luke here. Uh, That's a great question because I think, you know, one of the things people struggle with is benchmarking their portfolio part of that is understanding uh, what makes up those benchmarks. So the S&P 500 is actually not the top 500 companies in, in the U.S. market, but just f- companies that are selected from the uh, Standards and Poor's Committee. And so that's how they make up that benchmark. So if you take a look at the S&P 7, for example, the seven handful of names this year, uh, it's up like upwards of 20%. But if you take a look at the other 493, it's only up about 3% this year. And that's really indicative of the overall market. So, you know, if you're Poor taking breadth. a look about... It's called breadth. Yeah. If you're taking a look at you know, how you should benchmark your portfolio, if you have a diversified uh, you know, portfolio of U.S. equities, for example, then you wanna find a diversified U.S. index. The Russell 3000 is a great one. It takes mm-hmm. a look at the top 3,000 companies um, and it gives you a more accurate representation you know, of,
1: of what is happening in the U.S. market. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because at any given time, there's a, what is called style drift. And especially in those market cap weighted indices like the S&P 500. And it basically means that the larger names, they have a, a bigger weight. So if uh, those if right now, the tech industry is the highest weighting within uh, the S&P because they just tend to be valued the highest. And but that doesn't isn't always the case. Right. There have been periods where, you know, kind of pre 2008, the oil sector, uh, Exxon was the largest holding within the S and P. And so it's, it varies. And so does that mean that your, you want to benchmark something, uh, where maybe you're way underweight tech and should you be benchmarking towards an index that's overweight tech? probably not you want something that's uh, a, a a lot broader and that's uh, i agree with luke you know something like the russell 3000 that's why i look at the nyse for example that's 2500 different names that's going to give you a much better representation ideally you probably want uh, your you want to create your own benchmark if you can probably with your sector weightings right so there's a your your understanding are your energy stocks outforming the energy stocks within uh Within that sector, within the the market, um, are your industrial stocks outperforming the industrial stocks within within the market? That's the way I would probably look at it more than uh, the portfolio uh, in aggregate. So uh, it's definitely difficult to benchmark uh, because you want to be comparing apples to apples. And by nature, all portfolios are just a little bit different. Let's go to Sid in North Carolina and wants to talk about Liberty Energy.
4: Hi, Justin, good evening. Thank you for your time for picking up my call. And, uh,
3: yeah, I do have this talk in my radar
4: for last few days. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking it looks like a good one, but
3: uh, I don't want to get trapped just because it's cheap. Uh, uh, I'd like to hear your viewpoint. And if it's a good entry point, please do advise. Thank you.
1: Okay. Well, looking at Liberty Energy, and this is a, in the oil services area. It's a, a, one of the largest largest pressure pumpers in North America. A pretty decent size, $2.2 billion, so small cap name. And it does look cheap, Luke. Very little debt, and its business is, is pumping, right? Yeah, it's taken a turn on
2: profitability for the upside in the past couple of years.
1: Yeah, and the question is, is that sustainable? So if you look back, 2017, 18, pre-pandemic, it was had negative free cash flow, and suddenly earnings are expected to go from only 68 cents back in 2020 all the way to three dollars and seventy cents next year. But analysts, it looks like analysts uh, are downgrading those expectations, right, Luke? Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of that has
2: to do with the fact that energy companies in general are just going to go within the trend of whatever the commodities market's doing.
1: Yeah, uh, actually, I was I was looking at the wrong name. Uh, sorry, Liberty. Yeah, they were losing money in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one and twenty sixteen. Supposed to be five uh, three dollars and fifty six cents next year at twelve dollars and seventy five cents. That's a what a four to five multiple. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cheap. But the my here's my worry and, and my wonder why is it underperforming the oil services sector so much? Okay, this is in a clear downtrend. Okay, it's below all the major moving averages after today, 50, 100, 200-day moving average. And if you look at OIH, the oil sector, the the Vanek Oil Services ETF, that one's above the 50-day moving average, barely below the, the 100 and the 200, and it is still in a general uptrend. So my that's my main question, Luke, is why does it continue to drastically underperform its peers? Yeah, I mean, for me, it could be a debt story. It
2: does have little relative debt, but Uh, you know, if you look at its relative to its market value, rather, but if you look at its debt relative to what it's actually earning, I mean, its interest rate coverage ratio is 22%. You know, Uh, profitability metrics are one thing, but they do still matter in the nominal sense Mm -hmm. when relative when it's relative to your debt. So, you know, that could be one of the reasons why is is when they've been struggling for for a while
1: to service that debt from their earnings that And, and, and the market's kind of pricing in that maybe this profitability is more of a flash in the pan type of thing. Um, and so I would be looking for a name. I wouldn't be just too caught up in the fact that it's cheap. There are a lot of cheap names in the oil space. I would want one that has a longer track record of strong profitability. And this to me is just too near term. And I worry that it might, uh, be uh, once again, a flash in the pan. Let's go to Nick in Manhattan beach. wants to talk about Charles Schwab.
4: Uh, hello, Justin. Yeah. Um, so I believe this company is a little bit undervalued. Um, I think it took a bath with the regional banks back in March and hasn't quite um, come back to where I think for value is. Um, you know, operating metrics, profitability, gross margin, you know, recent uh, revenue growth, and income growth, all pretty um, pretty healthy to me. Uh, it looked, you know, stocks trade on forward earnings. Um, and it looks like they're going to make around 4 four to $4.20, $4.30 next year. And so to me, I think they're undervalued because they're at an all-time low price-to-earnings ratio, um, price-to-book ratio. And let's just say, you know, it's trading at a 14.5p right now. Typically, it's trading in the low 20s, mid-20s. If we were to ascribe a $4.30 earnings per share to just a 20p uh, ratio, that's, um, that's $86. It's currently trading at fifty-three bucks, so I think it's um, I think it's a good price to pay right now. What do you think?
1: Well, you, what you're talking about are earnings and multiples, and with Charles Schwab and uh, any of these uh, financial institutions that own a lot of longer-term debt, uh, longer-term Treasuries, excuse me, uh, there is that that issue of marking those assets to to market. So, a lot of the regional banks that went under their earnings going forward expectations in in over the last year looked pretty good, but obviously they were structurally insolvent, and when there was some sort of run on that bank, then they suddenly had to realize those losses. So that's really the issue here with Schwab is there are a lot of losses underneath the surface, and the question is. Will there be a run on Charles Schwab and and, uh, to to force them to realize some of those losses? And I think ultimately that is the biggest risk here and why it remains kind of down here in the high 40s, low 50s range for the past uh, few months. So that's what you have to really decide on, because you're right, I, I, I think it's cheap, but will those risks underneath the surface rear their ugly head. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, no, I agree
2: with you. I think that you know companies like Charles Schwab took a, took a hit in the regional banking crisis in a, in, a, in a way in which maybe wasn't warranted. They certainly do have those duration issues that you mentioned. But given that we still may be in a position where we don't fully know the scope of the issues caused by the Fed uh, with those rate hikes and with more hikes potentially down the road as well, um, the risk is definitely there. But yeah. it's, it's a company I've been looking at.
1: Yeah, we've been looking at this as well. I, I just want something from a technical perspective that uh, is telling me this is out of the woods. And I'm not seeing that yet. It's, you know, when something moves down, I've talked about this a lot. Uh, this is the most basic uh, of understanding of, of reading charts. It's uh, a consolidation pattern where there's a, a range that it trades in for a period of time, an extended period of time. And usually the it, it, its next move is just a continuation of the previous move, and that can be bullish, right? You saw that the S&P, uh, it had a move higher in the month of, what was that, uh, month of March, March into early April, and it consolidated for April and pretty much all of June, and then we broke out, uh, the, or, sorry, all, all of May, uh, and then we broke out here in, in June, so that's a, a bullish consolidation, whereas right now, with Charles Schwab, you have what's called bearish consolidation, which a lot of these regional banks have. So uh, I don't think that, and that, that just tells me that underneath the surface, the duration risk that we just spoke about is still there. If that goes away at some and that could just be – this could just be a bet on lower interest rates. If you think interest rates are going to be cut, I think these are, are great names to own. But as long as the Fed keeps – job owning higher for longer and it, it, there isn't a, any imminent uh near term cut in interest rates i think this is going to at best languish here and could take another stair step lower it doesn't mean it has to go bankrupt or you know go go uh you know uh, become structurally uh, insolvent but you know it, it may have a, a stair step down yeah
2: i agree you also got to be cognizant that sometimes in this situation where they want to be higher for longer the cut comes
1: after the calamity, and the calamity would be bad for prices and types of companies. Yeah, exactly. What's I think that's the biggest worry here in the markets is what is that next shoe to drop that will actually get the Fed to cut? You know, we we look at the the, re, the last banking crisis in March that precipitated all this, and that caused them to uh, launch. What's that? What was it? BTFD? What was it? I forgot the acronym, but basically, hey, give us your assets that are underwater, and we'll mark them to market, and you'll be fine, and you don't have, you know, uh, and and we'll give you the, the par value, and that kind of solved a lot of the problems for those those regional banks, and papered over uh, the issues. It, it 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 raised the Fed's balance sheet, so it brought more liquidity into the market, and that was ultimately a mini easing event. Despite the fact that they're raising interest rates, I think that's something that uh, most people don't understand is they think that all monetary policy is, is interest rates. It's not. It's interest rates as well as their balance sheet and how much liquidity they're putting out into the market. And so uh, you know, what is that next event that will cause the Fed to maybe pause QT? to cut interest rates. And like you said, Luke, that could be a calamitous event that take that pushes Schwab and the other regional banks uh, another leg lower. So uh, definitely keeping this on the watch list, but still on the sidelines for now. All right. Now let's touch a bit on the impetus for the Fed rate hikes, and that is inflation. And this is an issue not just here in the U.S., Although most people probably think it's just a U.S. phenomenon, especially if you are uh, uh, tied into politics, but across the world, central banks are lifting their interest rate forecasts, as well as interest rates in general. Uh, sorry, their inflation forecasts, as well as their interest rates. Now, here in the U.S. and in in Europe, in Europe, inflation still is right around five percent or higher in, in some countries, and this is without the tailwind of energy and food prices. Energy and food prices have been down over the past year. And that's that base effects issue. Uh, wage growth is stabilizing. And you're starting to see this uh, this problem of persistently high inflation uh, really worldwide. And you know, I think, Luke, the question will be is, how do central banks really fight inflation while not creating that hard landing?
2: Yeah, you know, it's difficult because in the U.S. we have been making a lot of progress. I know in Europe there hasn't been as much. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there are some things the Fed did to restrict credit markets with raising rates that did help with a little bit. But the things that helped for the most part were energy prices coming down and grocery prices going down, right? There's nothing the Fed could do to solve the fact that gas was really expensive. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing everyone feels. There's nothing the Fed could do to solve the fact that some avian flu hit a crop of chickens. You know, the chickens, they eventually got the production. Back up so well,
1: in the fed's oEs monetary policy is all about uh, ramping up demand you know higher or lower yeah you know, can exactly. 't really do anything about supply
2: correct, correct, so you know when you have a situation like that where in a lot of countries the uh, you know in, around the world, the variables are exogenous in terms of what 's actually creating the inflation. I think it's just a situation where the banks get trapped in having to raise rates to prove to the markets that they're trying to beat inflation, whether or not it actually does
1: anything. Yeah, I think they're they're trying to uh, walk that tightrope of whether uh, they, they know there's long and variable lags. Now, they'll argue that actually their impact on the economy is more immediate than it has been in the past because they use forward guidance, whereas in the 90s, they didn't do that, right? They would just... They would show up and they'd say hey we're raising interest rates 50 basis points and suddenly short-term rates would move whereas now they jawbone it going forward and it kind of gradually gets there well ahead of time um so i would kind of agree with that but i still think there there's there's the variable uh, lag to this and what's interesting here and this is the, the that uh, housing data as of late is that in some ways this at least domestically because of 30-year fixed rates it's actually helped the housing housing uh, activity, right? Labor markets because home builders are still building. So it's kind of a paradox that they're dealing with. So, well, this is the best talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom, and our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at eight 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 ninety nine chart.
3: KPP Financial invites you to join us for a new Invest Talk Wealth Webinar, Rates and Real Estate, June 28th, from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Time. So go to InvestTalk.com, register for this free Wealth Webinar, Rates and Real Estate.
4: Hello, this is Sam calling from Dallas. My question is about Verizon or Walgreens, which is WBA. These two dividend stocks are actually down as of today. So I wanted to know, I mean, what are your views on these two stocks? I mean, what is the future? Because I think they pay a very good dividend, and I think they are a very good long-term buy if someone would like to invest. So if I'm looking at a horizon of, let's say, five years, would you give your approval if someone would like to buy these two stocks today in large quantities and just keep them? Thank you.
1: Well, my first issue here is that you're filtering based on dividend. Uh, They have high dividends, but does that mean that they're good investments? Not necessarily. So uh, they can be. They certainly can be. But I wouldn't buy them simply because they have a high dividend yield. And I think the biggest issue here for both of them would be the debt load. So... Can they sustain the debt that they have on their balance sheet and will their profitability return to something that is attractive? Now, right now, the return equity for Walgreens is negative 13%. Verizon is 24% positive. So, you know, and historically, on average, uh, the Verizon uh, return equity tends to be much higher, especially since 2000. And let's see, what was this date? 2000, post-2013, so last decade, it's been structurally a much more positive business. So if I'm picking one or the other, I'm picking Verizon, right, Luke?
2: Yeah, but you know, at
1: the same time, the problem with Verizon is the cash flows
2: remain consistent, but its profitability has just shrunk you know, yeah. it's, it's for, it's for, it's high still. Yeah, no, it's still high. It's certainly high. Yes. If you have to choose between the two, choose the positive, but, yeah. um, you know, even, even if we're talking about, cause we don't have to invest in either here. Yeah, exactly. You know, Verizon as a company has kind of had some, some shrinking, shrinking market share. It's, it's, it's earnings outlook is not great over the next three quarters. It's been pretty weak relative to the Russell
1: 3000.
2: Yeah. Maybe
1: buy it, but not now is what I would say. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's one of those things where you're, you're really comparing apples to oranges. As well, you're talking Correct. about uh, a, a company that owns a uh, suite of drugstores and one of the behemoths within within the wireless industry here in the U.S. Uh, do, basically, a what, triopoly. Would you call it between? Let's go with it. Go. Let's go with it. Yeah. Triumvirate. Between, trium- yeah. Between AT and T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. So uh, I definitely think I'm I'm going Verizon over over Walgreens here. But you have to keep in mind that there is debt heavy debt loads on both. And if I'm picking one to maintain that debt load, it's definitely Verizon. Yes. All right. Now, lastly, let's touch a bit on a new recent trend in regards to global trade. And that is between three of the the largest countries by economic size in the world and that would be the US China and South Korea especially if you're talking about the tech space now goods exports from South Korea to China fell 10% to about 122 billion from 2021 to 2022 and here and to the US it actually increased 22% over the same period to 139 billion so the imports into the U S are now higher than imports uh, into, to China, or I guess you should say exports to the U S and exports to China from South Korea. And and to me, Luke, this is a very strong indicator that companies are investing more in production here in the U S versus, uh, versus China, because remember the Korea produces a lot of high value goods, semiconductors mainly, and if they're exporting it here to the U.S., that's to go into end products. And that means our manufacturing base is, uh, is growing a lot faster, I think, than, uh, than the China's. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think I wouldn't jump to too many conclusions, though, because we don't
2: know if it's on like, the internal supply chain side or if it's on the demand side or what's really driving it. I think it's too early to tell that. But from a geopolitical standpoint, it's certainly good for the U.S., who has been trying to get a stronger foothold in asia mm-hmm. and as we've known historically trade tends to lessen conflict so having being a better trading partner a bigger trading partner with with uh, you know south korea kind of strengthens our hand
1: in a time where we're trying to reopen and warm up relations with china yeah and in the first 3 months of this year korean exports to china fell another 20% jeez and that was uh, that's fell below sorry fell below twenty percent of the total of Korean exports for the first time wow. since two thousand five. That's that's the difference there, but still uh, continues to weaken this year. Um, so, you know, this is I think also another kind of shot across the bow to China to say, hey, stop stealing our IP because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really what South Korea's uh, th- their bailiwick is, which is high value goods and they don't want China, which is trying to move up the value chain yeah. uh, to continue to move in that direction on the back of uh, South Korean companies. So I wanted to highlight that because I think it's uh, important to, to look at those little things underneath the surface that really uh, back up the, our thesis that deglobalization continues to move along at a fast pace. Now I'm Justin Klein, and along with Luke Carrero, and this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Pay. And you can rate and review on iTunes as well. Now it's official, we've now surpassed the 53.3 million podcast download mark since it all began. So thanks to you. And mark your calendars June twenty-eighth, our new wealth webinar, rates in real estate, and you can register. investtalk.com independent thinking showed success this invest talk good night invest talk is a trademark of kpp financial because
0: of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security